This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Over the last two decades, no criminal defense attorney in America has had a more profound impact on advancing the rights of the convicted than has Barry Sheck. In 1992, when forensic DNA testing was still in its infancy, Mr. Sheck, along with his colleague Peter Neufeld, founded the Innocence Project, which has since figured prominently in the release of hundreds of prison inmates. Mr. Sheck also teaches at the Cardozo School of Law in New York, and in addition to co-authoring a book about Innocence Project cases, I am told that he has written at least one screenplay that has yet to be made into a motion picture. Barry Sheck, welcome to Lee Speaking. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're known throughout the world as this brilliant attorney whose work has resulted in the release of so many people who've been convicted of crimes that they had absolutely nothing to do with. Yet at the same time, when people hear the name Barry Sheck, they also they think to themselves, oh, yeah, that's the guy who back in 1995, in essence, helped O.J. Simpson get away with murder. That's what they think. That's the rap. So I guess I'm wondering whether you feel uh, that there's any tension between those two elements of your reputation? Well, when you say tension, uh, I mean, maybe in some people's minds, but uh, there's been a clear, uh, intellectually consistent path. Uh, when Peter Neufeld and I were brought in by the defense team in the O.J. Simpson case, mm -hmm. uh, it was at the time before even a DNA test had been done on that case, and they were just analyzing uh, all kinds of biological evidence. And by the end of the trial, uh, the prosecutors, uh, particularly uh, Woody Clark, who subsequently became a judge, unfortunately he's passed, uh, and Rock Harmon, the other prosecutor, uh, they agreed, uh, essentially, that the way that the Los Angeles Police Department crime lab had handled the crime scene evidence uh, was all wrong. Yeah. I guess, you know, when I talk about, you know, tension, what I'm talking about is, as a criminal defense lawyer, your relationship to the truth. And as an Innocence Project lawyer, it seems to me your stock and trade is the truth. I mean, you're proving beyond a reasonable doubt that these people through the, have not committed the crimes that they were convicted of. Oh, not only that. We now, find, the OJ it, case, we it's find a, the people who really committed the crimes. Yeah. Uh, now, in the OJ case, yeah. you know, what you did brilliantly was uh, discredit the prosecution's case. And there was an eight-day cross-examination that you did. Uh, the, uh, the, the witness on the stand was an LAPT criminologist named Dennis Fung. Yes. I understand that that was just a brilliant cross-examination. But you would acknowledge, wouldn't you, that there's, on, that there's a gap between, on the one hand, discrediting an expert witness, and on the other hand, proving your client factually innocent, right? I mean, they're, they're two different things, aren't they? They can be. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, they can be, uh, uh, you know, one of the same. Uh, the, I guess the point I'm really making to you is yeah. that uh, the critique of the evidence in the O.J. Simpson case uh, was correct. I mean, you don't pick yes. up 
uh, blood stains, put them wet into a plastic bag, and then put them in a hot truck. Um, and what uh, uh, the criminalist at the LAPD lab, when he took OJ's blood and he opened up a purple top tube and had an aerosol spray with all this high molecular weight DNA uh, going everywhere, and he actually said, I don't think I necessarily changed my gloves. So then he touches all the evidence from the crime scene, including the blood drops, which are already been degraded because of the way they were mishandled. I mean, that is a disaster. Yeah. Uh, there is nobody that thinks that any of that was done correctly. Yeah. Um, and as a consequence, uh, we didn't take any unfair shots. Now, I'm not even saying that defense lawyers uh, are prohibited from making arguments which they may not necessarily believe themselves in terms of uh, discrediting witnesses. Yeah. Uh, but it just so happened in these cases, uh, every scientific argument we made, every critique we made of these uh, criminalists, not only did we believe, but I think uh, the community has accepted as being correct. So when uh, people ask you, do you think O.J. Simpson was factually innocent, what do you say to them? Well, b b my first answer is the answer that you would expect from any lawyer, and that is to say I have a duty of loyalty to my client, and this client, I think all the defense lawyers would agree, uh, told us from the beginning to the end that he was innocent and insisted on it. And the jury found uh, a reasonable doubt, that he was not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think there was more than a factual basis uh, to support that verdict. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, more than that, and all the books on it that have been written, uh, some of which uh, unfortunately have a lot of the defense files, which, believe me, I think never should have been disclosed under those circumstances. Yeah, let, let me, uh, let, let me uh, let, give a very good uh, uh, description of all the things that happened in that trial. Let me, let me say one of those books. Uh, Jeffrey Tubin yeah. wrote a book called The Run of His Life yes. back in 1996. And in that book, he uh, characterized you as the best lawyer and certainly the hardest working well, lawyer. Was the best lawyer. That was the title of the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's yeah, exactly yeah. right. And I didn't know Jeffrey. And, that's right. And, and, you, and he characterized you as the hardest working lawyer on OJ's much vaunted defense team. But, but he also said this. He said, quote, Sheck's goal epitomized the nihilistic function of a defense lawyer to establish that the mountain of forensic evidence against his client means nothing. To be sure, many of his explanations were fanciful and some were silly and they were in part contradictory, positing a police department that was both totally inept and brilliantly sinister. But Sheck's passion and skill made his theories real for the jury. And for that reason, he is as much as any other person in that courtroom responsible for the verdict that came out of it. But he also you said at the beginning of the chapter that uh, that if you followed all the arguments, they were intellectually consistent and they made sense. When he's saying it's fanciful, I mean, that's because Jeffrey has a view uh, of the evidence that Mr. Simpson is guilty and that mm -hmm. some things, uh, you know, he finds implausible uh, as explanations in terms of how certain things got into certain places. But in terms of uh, uh, the science, and the cross-contamination of DNA and how it could have happened mm -hmm. in the crime laboratory in particular, uh, you know, uh, he recognizes that those were intellectually consistent. So, uh, you know, I, uh, 
why is this such a big deal? <laughs> you must know the We're going to move on. But no, no, I mean, I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, Do well, you, I mean, this one, case was a disaster for the American criminal justice system. Let's get it that was. straight. Yes, and in ways that may surprise you. Uh, first of all, uh, the coverage of uh, legal proceedings, um, I think, were irreparably damaged. Uh, now we have the era of Nancy Grace yes, um, and uh, tabloid TV in the coverage of uh, high-profile cases. And uh, my friend Steve Brill, who had invented court TV, uh, believe me, because I was one of the original commentators, we used to have essentially uh, requirements of what lawyers should know before they get on uh, television to comment on a case. They have to understand the evidence in days that preceded it. They had to understand what the law is. They had to keep their comments within certain normal limits. It wasn't uh, just to make the most incendiary comment that you could and develop kind of it's a trash TV. Gladi- gladiatorial. Oh, it's just, you know, I mean, uh, trials in America from the Scopes Monkey trial uh, before and after, you know, have always served a form of public entertainment. Yeah. Uh, but that's not what you really wanted uh, when you started televising trials. You wanted people to learn about the system. And, uh, you know, Jerry Ullman and I were just reminiscing the other night. Uh, uh, we saw each other in Los Angeles and had dinner. And, you know, we were remembering how at the very beginning, you know, people like us who teach law were saying, oh, this will be a wonderful educational opportunity. Um, and it didn't turn out that way at all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was uh, quite unfortunate because uh, there was a hope that you could use uh, television to look at legal proceedings um, and people would learn a lot about it. It didn't turn out that way from the Simpson case. It it, it really became about ratings. It became about uh, uh, trials as entertainment, infotainment, uh, and uh, and the the racial consequences. I think really set us back. So, uh, in so many ways, it was a disaster for the system. Ironically. The one good silver lining out of that case is that it absolutely transformed the way that criminalists uh, and uh, forensic scientists dealt with crime scene evidence, and it ushered in a new uh, DNA era in full swing. So since 1992, when you started the Innocence Project, my understanding is that uh, uh, your efforts and the efforts of other Innocence Project lawyers have resulted in the release of something like 300. uh, There are 312 uh, people, as we sit here today, that have been exonerated with post-conviction DNA testing. mm -hmm. Uh, Our project, uh, the Innocence Project, uh, based in New York, um, has been responsible for either as attorney of record or assisting in over 186, 87, I'm not sure of the exact number. Uh, there are now 51 projects in a network of in a, what we call the Innocence Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, those projects have certainly done uh, a number of DNA cases and non-DNA cases. Our Innocence Project is actually by accident essentially uh, uh, exonerated uh, seven people in non-DNA cases. The uh, prosecutors themselves have been able to exonerate people with uh, DNA evidence. So altogether at 312, but in close to 45, 46% of those cases, the real perpetrator has been identified. 
And out of the 312 cases, I think you can say with confidence uh, that those people are actually innocent. Now, there's another list that's put together by our colleagues, uh, Sam Gross at the University of Michigan Law School, a great journalist, Maurice Posley, um, and uh, Rob Warden, another great journalist at the Center for Wrongful Convictions in uh, Chicago at Northwestern Law School. It's called the Registry of Exonerations. And if you go online, you'll see that since 1989, which we date as the beginning of the DNA innocence era, mm-hmm. uh, there have been over uh, 1,500 cases, DNA and non-DNA, where uh, people were convicted, their convictions were vacated based on new evidence of innocence, uh, they either were acquitted on a retrial, pardoned by a governor, prosecutor decided not to pursue the charges. So that's an instrumental definition of an exoneration. Uh, as the uh, authors of the registry will tell you, not every one of those people uh, will they vouch uh, are actually innocent, but most of them probably are. When we're talking about exonerations, uh, say over the last 20 years, how many of those exonerations have come from death row? Well, that's an interesting uh, question. We've had uh, 19 post-conviction DNA exonerations. But those are people on death row. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Quite a number of our cases uh, uh, were people that were death eligible, where they would have been death penalty cases, but they were in non-death penalty states. Who's come the closest to actually getting executed before you were able to exonerate? Well, in our case, I think the closest we had was Ron Williamson, uh, who Uh John Grisham wrote about memorably in the book The Innocent Man. we wrote about him in actual innocence, but he and his co-defendant, Dennis Fritz, who thankfully was not charged with capital murder, but Ron came within five days of execution. Five days. I've heard like one case in which uh, it was like a matter of hours. Well, there have been a few like that, um, and, uh, uh, you know, a day or two, hours. Yeah. Uh, but you asked me about a DNA exoneration. I think Ron... Uh, we initially called actual innocence five days to execution mm-hmm. and uh, other dispatches from the wrongly convicted. So, mm-hmm. uh, But uh, Grisham's book uh, uh, is a wonderful book, uh, and John is just a, you know, a, a fantastic writer and uh, you know, a, a really admirable uh, person in, in every way, both as a public figure and just as, a, mm-hmm. as an individual. He's a mensch. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but the book is his only nonfiction book, I believe, and uh, it's terrific. Uh, everybody should read a John Grisham book. Read that one. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, that will uh, certainly show you, uh, uh, dear readers, that uh, the risk of executing innocent people uh, is a real one. And so much of what we've learned about this uh, is that it is beyond regulation. Now, probably the most prominent case that the Innocence Project has been working on now for quite a number of years involves uh, somebody who wasn't lucky at all, Cameron Todd Willingham, who was executed in Texas uh, by Governor Rick Perry. And uh, we have already demonstrated, uh, I think, uh, to any reasonable person's satisfaction and uh, the satisfaction of the Forensic Science Commission uh, in Texas, which was uh, a group we helped set up in the first instance, but. Uh, 
that the uh, arson evidence that was used uh, to convict Willingham, who was con- uh, he was convicted and sentenced to death for killing his own children. Um, and the theory was is that he burned went, his, own, his own house down. Burned his own house down. Three children were in it one morning, and he went around the house, and in di- different areas he would splash accelerant. But there was no accelerant recovered uh, from those areas. And what happened is is that uh, the fire marshals, experts, uh, uh, went to these different areas and they said, oh, there's a V, or there's alligatoring, or there's spider glass, or there's scouring, or there's burning under furniture. And these are signs that an accelerant was used, but the fire was so intense it burnt up the whole accelerant. Um, but those are the different areas where the accelerant was spread. Um, and the expert even went on the stand and he goes, I look at the fire and the fire doesn't lie. It talks to me. And the fire is telling me that uh, the person who started it wanted the children to die. I mean, it's really extraordinary testimony. Uh, now it's been demonstrated uh, by every expert that's it's looked at it. It's been completely discredited. Completely discredited. Yeah. There was no accelerant in these places. So you've where they been said trying to get a posthumous exoneration, pardon. Posthumous pardon, for because we found out something else. And here's what people have to understand about yeah. Willingham. Not only has the, the science been demonstrated as junk, but at the time of the trial, uh, the prosecutor had a problem because the defendant's wife, who had left earlier that morning, uh, was saying, I think I, he couldn't have possibly have done this. There were problems in our marriage, but Todd would never do this to the children. This is Stacy. Stacy. And uh, what happened is that all of a sudden, this jailhouse uh, snitch, uh, Johnny Webb, who was in prison uh, at the time, awaiting trial on a robbery in the first degree, uh, claimed that Willingham one day just said to him, uh, you know, I killed my children, but I did it. I uh, burnt down the house because I wanted to protect my wife. She beat up one of the children or the children before she left for work, and I didn't want anybody to blame her. Now, the autopsies of the children don't show uh, uh, any of that. Um, so it was kind of crazy on its face. But we've now demonstrated, and we just found this evidence, that Webb, at the time of the trial, was asked, in return for pleading, you got you pled guilty to robbery one, yes. What did you get? 15 years. What's the earliest you can get out? Three years, nine months. Uh, in return for that plea, did you get any promise, any benefit from me, the prosecutor? No. Is there, you know there's nothing I can do for you, John Jackson asks Johnny Webb. He says, yes. Uh, well, the reason why this is so important is that on the eve of Willingham's execution, his cousin uh, uh, helped the defense lawyer find a leading arson expert who gave an affidavit saying, uh, this is all junk science. Uh, And the prosecutor then from Navarro County answered by saying, well, even if that's true, it's 10 years too late, but even if it's true, you still have the confession to Johnny Webb, and that's legally sufficient to uphold the conviction uh, and the execution. And technically speaking, you know, that's true. And we have now spoken to that prosecutor who wrote those papers, and he did not know what we have just found. And what we have just found is in the Johnny Webb file. Yeah. We found that he was brought back in 1996. He was resentenced to a robbery in the second degree so he could get out early. 
which was an illegal sentence. They did in what they call in Latin nunc pro tunctit, to from a robbery one to a robbery two. But the only basis for nunc pro tunking a sentence in Texas of that kind from a robbery one to a robbery two is that it was a clerical error, that when he originally pled guilty, uh, he was really pleading to a robbery two, not a robbery one. And there's no evidence in the record uh, to suggest that that was the case. And then written in the prosecutor's file yeah. for Webb is the statement uh, this was uh, you know robbery to um, and uh, based on cooperation or co-op right. in the Willingham which case. of course wasn't disclosed at the time no not only was it disclosed yeah. uh, not disclosed but the prosecutor who filed those last minute papers um, has told us that if he had known about that statement in the file that there was a deal it's what lawyers called uh, uh, Giglio or Julio era. It's a Supreme Court case. That's every prosecutor knows you have to disclose that. And if you disclose that, then the whole house of cards would have fallen right then uh, in 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, we would have known that the jailhouse niche's testimony was uh, uh, not true and that the uh, forensic evidence was junk. And I have a lot of confidence that the whole case would have fallen apart and that Willingham would be with us right now. Uh, but that didn't happen. And so uh, we are still working on this, yeah. and we think that uh, that is misconduct. And as I said to uh, uh, John Schwartz of the New York Times, I can't see any innocent explanation for this behavior, and it is really beyond regulation. The folks who fight tooth and nail yeah. to prevent clearly innocent people from being released, maybe even being released from death row, do you ever view those any of those folks as just simply evil? Uh, no. Um, I think that, you know, we've learned a lot about cognitive science. <laughs> and uh, uh, I really mean that. I, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, from the point of view of cognitive psychology, and there's a neuroscience basis for a lot of this, um, you know, we know how people uh, get into certain belief systems, and then they begin to, you know, they have confirmation bias, selection bias, expectation bias. Um, it's very, very powerful. Uh, I've been teaching law for over 34 years. I see when my students become prosecutors. I see when they become defense lawyers. Uh, you can even, tell that on the first day of class? No, no, I see what happens to them. <laughs> well, what we find by the first year of class is that we assign people, you argue this side of the case, you argue that side of the case, and we give people sides that they would never you think before they entered law school they could possibly defend. Yeah. And then they get into the role, and they, in an adversary system, they start making the arguments from both different points of view, and then soon they're believing it, right? Uh, and they start viewing all the evidence from those different perspectives. Uh, now, that serves a good function uh, in an adversary system, a dialectical search for the truth. Um, there are different ways that one can go about fact-finding. There's uh, a lot to be said for certain inquisitorial processes, as it's called, as well as for the adversary system, which I believe in. Uh, but what we do know about uh, cognitive science and just the way people view evidence is that uh, uh, you can be biased and it's very, very hard to de-bias people. I'll give you a very simple example that's relevant to this discussion. Our colleague uh, E.T.L. Drawer, Dr. E.T.L. Drawer, is a great, great cognitive scientist. So he did this great example. Um, 
there's a very famous case involving a lawyer in Oregon named Brandon Mayfield, who uh, was, his fingerprint was wrongfully identified uh, by the FBI um, from a whole list of fingerprints as having been on this plastic uh, material in the bombs that blew up the trains in Madrid. The FBI said, oh, there's a 15-point fingerprint match uh, to Mayfield. And uh, he's only reason his prints were in the system is that he was in the United States military. So they picked him up on a material witness order. He was a, a lawyer in Oregon. And, of course, he had married a Muslim woman. He converted to being a Muslim. And so they go, oh, my God, look, uh, uh, obviously it's him. And I spoke to uh, uh, the, the federal defender, then hired his, got a, a court-appointed uh, fingerprint expert who looked at it and said, my God, it's Mayfield's print. Right? He's the defense expert. But the Spanish authorities were always saying, no, 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 that's not his print. We, we see uh, uh, discrepancies. The FBI said, no, that's an artifact. Every time a print goes down, this is true, uh, uh, and you look at a latent and it's a different surface, there can be distortions. And what you're calling a discrepancy, we call a distortion. Uh, and then finally, the Spanish authorities found a real member of Al-Qaeda, uh, and they matched the print to this individual, and everybody became convinced, oh, my God, it wasn't Mayfield. Um, it was enormous cognitive bias in sticking to the judgment even after you made it, right? Right. Uh, uh, so what Drawer did is that he went out and he got a group of very, very experienced expert fingerprint examiners from the United Kingdom. And he and his uh, partner, Dr. Uh, Charlton, they gave them uh, uh, a series of cases, and they said, this is the, the, Cam the Brandon Mayfield case. And so everybody took a look at the prints, and they thought it was the Mayfield case, and all of a sudden they began finding exclusions, right? Well, in fact, he didn't give them the Mayfield prints. <coughs> he gave them prints from their own cases where they made matches. Hmm. And so uh, uh, many of them, uh, I think it was three out of five, uh, renounced their own prior matches in cases where people, everybody believed were guilty and they were true matches, mm -hmm. just by biasing them and telling it was the Mayfield case. He's then gone on to do this by telling fingerprint examiners, in this case, we have a false confession. In this case, we have an absolute alibi, and he biases results. Okay. He's gone on to do this with forensic anthropologists. I mean, in other okay, words, but when we're talking, you can bias people. What, but when we're talking about DNA, is there DNA any? too? DNA testing. Uh, there is a lot of interpretation, unfortunately, when you're dealing with what they call low copy DNA, low template DNA. Uh, you know, when DNA now is uh, uh, tests are now done, you get these little spikes that look like an electrocardiograph or something. And there's a room for interpretation as to whether you're seeing something that's a real allele or a real uh, genetic uh, variant, or it's what they call stochastic fluctuation. Mm -hmm. It's an artifact. Right, and people can disagree about it. So they've done experiments where they bias the DNA mm -hmm. examiner uh, uh, with domain irrelevant information, as it's called, and uh, you'll find that you can bias the way they interpret even DNA results. Now, so yeah, uh, uh, the 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 point is that what you ought to do with both DNA examination and you can do it with fingerprint examiners as well is that you have blind readings. In other words. Uh, when the DNA examiner looks at those spikes, they have to make an interpretation not knowing 
who's uh, not looking at the samples from, uh, let's say, the defendant or the victim or somebody else uh, until they really have to for purposes of doing an analysis. So they'll score the crime scene evidence a certain way, and then they'll score look at the other stuff, and they call that sequential unmasking. Right, So they only get potential biasing information that is relevant to the examination later. Okay, uh, But also in other kinds of uh, assays where you're called upon to make interpretations that's in part subjective, uh, it should be done blind. Uh, that's what science dictates. Right. And uh, you make your readings without biasing domain irrelevant information. Right. Uh, and most investigations, unfortunately, of all kinds, are not conducted that way. Well, let's talk about, you know, in terms of, say, level of certainty. Let's talk about, and this is a case that you talk about in your book, the Ronald uh, Cotton case. Uh, this was a guy who was, uh, who was uh, accused of uh, raping a woman. Uh, the woman's name was uh, Jennifer Thompson, and she identified Cotton. To, and she said it w she was absolutely certain that this was the guy who broke. He was a stranger who broke into her apartment and raped her one night. And she remained certain until the DNA test was done, which showed apparently that Cotton was not the guy. And identify the real perpetrator, ultimately Bobby Poole. Okay, so uh, I guess the first question is: Did the DNA evidence show beyond a reasonable doubt that Cotton was innocent? It sure did. Okay, I mean, so there's no room for error there. Well, I mean, I, I. But when we say there's no room for error, look what happened. Uh, and by the way, there's a wonderful book that Ronald Cotton wrote with Jennifer Thompson. Yeah. Called Picking Cotton. Uh, as long with a great, uh, great PBS, t well, yeah. it's, and it's a great book. <laughs> yeah, and you have to see the two of them together because they've become great friends. Yes, uh, since the exoneration, and in the second trial, uh, as Jennifer will tell you, uh, they actually had Bobby Poole, the real perpetrator, there because the great defense lawyer Richard Rosen and others had figured out that who, there, there was this other individual named Bobby Poole who had committed similar crimes mm -hmm. in the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and then not only did the DNA exonerate Ronald Cotton, but it identified Bobby Poole who had committed other similar crimes. And, you know, you could see the resemblance. Uh, and, and so ultimately... And he was convicted, obviously, of right. uh, that crime. So I think you can say with a high degree of certainty Both that Ronald because, Cotton is innocent. Right, because, <laughs> number one, the DNA didn't match him, and number two, the DNA matched this other guy. Yeah, who yeah. Uh, you know, had committed similar crimes of that type. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, that Thompson, Jennifer Thompson, became friends with Ronald Cotton. Yeah. I mean, this is an extraordinary story. I mean, when she found out that she had made a mistake... That mistake meant that this guy, Cotton, spent 11 years in his life in prison yes. for a crime he didn't commit. So how did she process that information? I mean, did she go through some, some stages of, of grief and acceptance before getting to the point where she could become friends with this guy? Yes, she did. And she's really one of my heroes. Uh, both of them are. Uh, and that is a remarkably transparent and moving process, mm -hmm. a spiritual process. And it's a great book. Uh, there was also a documentary uh, called What Jennifer Saw. And uh, 
what happened was is that actually there was a documentarian uh, for PBS named Ben Loderman. Uh, and we sent Ben down to North Carolina and suggested that he look at this case. And then he did this documentary uh, where you know, she describes the whole process of what it felt like uh, to be sexually assaulted, how she was looking at the face of her attacker, and she's a very, very smart person, and she was going to remember it, and uh, the whole process of how she came to learn, unfortunately, that uh, the DNA had exonerated him, and now we've gone back and looked at that whole process of the identification procedures, and there's been a tremendous amount of work done by uh, uh, psychologists, scientists, mm-hmm. on eyewitness identification, and there are best practices in place that probably could have avoided this particular era mm-hmm. involving uh, having double-blind administration of photo arrays or lineups, uh, and uh, uh, telling the witness uh, when you look at the photographs um, if you don't see the person uh, that you think did this uh, don't worry the investigation will continue it's just as important that you tell us that the, uh, the, the person isn't there as you make uh, an identification uh, and that it all be documented and they take confidence statements from the, witnesses in that situation the power of suggestion is, is huge enormous. it's huge and, 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 yeah. and we've learned a lot about this from yeah. experimental psychology and the uh, National Academy is uh, uh, coming out with a report on that soon. Uh, but we have had uh, uh, the New Jersey Supreme Court in the Henderson case, the Oregon Supreme Court in the Lawson case, have now uh, come out with a whole series of scientific reforms uh, that ought to be followed in assessing this evidence. The International Association of the Chiefs of Police and many jurisdictions in this country have adopted these best practices mm-hmm. uh, that will not eliminate, but they will uh, uh, certainly cut down on not just the number of wrongful identifications, but uh, will cut down on the number of filler picks. Yeah. That is, uh, witnesses picking people who we know are not the assailant, and that kind of burns the witness and impedes the investigation. So uh, we're sure that these best practices, uh, again, will not only uh, uh, prevent uh, or certainly reduce the number of innocent people wrongly identified, but they will also enhance the capability of law enforcement to capture the right person. Generally speaking, we know, do we not, that prison time is much harder for the innocent than it is for the guilty, that with the innocent there's a sense of rage and indignation that's so much more difficult to cope with. So I'm wondering if you understand how people who are in that situation, you know, year in and year out, maybe decade after decade, are able to hold on to their sanity. Well, I think uh, we, uh, I'm all admiration. Uh, I am stunned and humbled uh, by the witness that uh, uh, our clients who have been exonerated uh, for crimes they didn't commit. I just, uh, as a spiritual matter, I find them incredibly admirable mm-hmm. and courageous and amazing people. Uh, that does not answer the question that you really pose, like how many people have we not found uh, who just went crazy? Mm. I mean, I've spoken to... Uh, uh, Kevin Green was a United States Marine. He did, uh, I think, cite, we wrote about him in Actual Innocence uh, in our one of our last chapters. 
uh, wrongly convicted for assaulting his wife. He did 17 years. I remember him talking about wanting to jump off uh, a tier in San Quentin prison. Uh, uh, you know, he came very, very close to killing himself and yeah. doing that. Uh, how many people have we lost I mean, that just went crazy or yeah. uh, wound up putting themselves in situations where they were killed? I don't know. I mean, there was a guy that was just uh, written about. Uh, I believe his name was Glenn Ford. Yes, Glenn spent Ford. Spent 30 years in prison for a crime that uh, clearly he did not commit. Yeah, I was just uh, talking to his lawyer saying, uh, as a matter of fact, in, uh, how, how out can of Shreveport, how, how can you be in that situation for well, 30 years and Calif not go absolutely crazy? Take a California example. This past week I was talking with Cash Register. Uh, that's his real name. It's K-A-S-H, Register, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. He did 34 years for a crime he didn't commit. 34 years. So how do people do you survive understand, that? Yeah, how do people so, can survive that? I, I think uh, uh, we have to understand that as a, uh, a spiritual matter. And one of the things you find unites all of these individuals is that when they're first uh, in prison for crimes they didn't commit, uh, uh, they're in a rage, as you can well expect. Sure. But there comes a point uh, a few years in where they begin to realize that if they're enraged all the time, It'll kill them. So they find a kind of transcendence where they can transcend the anger. Sometimes this is misinterpreted. When uh, the exonerated get out of prison after you know, 10, 20, some instances, 30 years in jail, people are amazed. Uh, you know, they're, they're so calm. Uh, they're so forgiving. Uh, they have this kind of spiritual transcendence that people pick up on. It doesn't mean they aren't bitter, and it doesn't mean they don't have grievances. My Lord, sure they do. Uh, but there is this unique kind of uh, uh, transcendence that they achieve. Otherwise, it would have eaten So you alive. find that the people who you've exonerated, you find that they all share that in common? Yes. In order to survive, they kind of all have to come to that. They do come to a place, uh, uh, almost without exception, where they get beyond... Uh, you know, extraordinary, consuming anger and bitterness, and they are more forgiving mm. uh, of what happened and uh, some of the people involved in the process uh, than uh, any reasonable person would expect. Um, and what I found extraordinary are all these people that go before parole boards and they know they can get out five, ten years earlier if they'll just admit that they're guilty and show remorse mm. so they can be let out. And again and again and again, uh, people from ordinary circumstance uh, with not a lot to prepare them for this extraordinary step show the moral courage to say, no, I can't say that I did this when I didn't. And they wind up spending all this time in jail. Cash Register in Los Angeles, who did 34 years, he was telling me just the other day, he went in front of the parole board 11 times. And 11 times he said to them, I didn't do this. And I know I could get out earlier, but I can't say I did something that I didn't do. But, but how because common that would is destroy that? your identity. Yeah, yeah. How common is yeah, it? How common? It's extremely common really? among the wrongfully convicted. This really? is more, more common than not. 
And, I'm and not it's sure people I could do that kinds. in that situation. I'm in prison for 10 years. I've got a shot to get out. I mean, could Any you rat- say? Could no. You s- I mean, I, as I sit here now, I can't imagine yes. not, uh, not doing it. But when I see it through the eyes of these individuals, I begin to understand it. Because if you're in 10 years before this, right, and you're innocent, it is such a strong part of your identity. It's yeah. like negating yourself. It's like saying, uh, uh, you know, I, th- what has kept me going all these years, the knowledge that I did not commit this horrible crime, that everybody thinks I did. If I admit that, I am destroying myself. There's nothing I can do to respect myself after I do that. You've been talking about identity. Let me ask a couple questions about your identity. Okay. Uh, over the years that you've been doing this work, you've become, for lack of a better word, famous. Uh, I know of two movies that have been made in which you were portrayed by a couple actors. There was a movie. Peter Gallagher. Yeah, Peter Conviction. Gallagher. <laughs> the mo- it was a, a, a movie about Innocence Project trial. Peter Gallagher played it's you. A great movie. And, Conviction. And Bruno Kirby theory. played you. Well, in that, uh, was an OJ movie. that was but an OJ movie. That was an OJ movie. You should go see the yeah, Conviction yeah. movie. Much better. So, <laughs> uh, and that was a terrific movie. I saw that. Great movie. Wasn't it good? But uh, Hillary what's it Slank. Like? Yes. Uh, uh, Hillary Slank. Plays yeah, Betty Ann yeah, Waters. Yeah, right. We talk about uh, a heroine. Right. Uh, who, uh, a high school dropout who went back to college and then law school to get her brother out of jail. Uh, great performance by uh, Hillary. Uh, so what's Sam it like? Rockwell playing her brother yes. Kenny. And Peter Gallagher, who Peter played Gallagher. Gabe, he was he's, great. He was great. Well, I was going to ask, what's it like for you to be sitting in a movie? Well, I don't know if you saw it in a movie theater or not, or you know, well, in front I, of your I, large I, screen I, TV. I, but, my, uh, uh, my next door neighbor and dear friend Andy Karsh produced that movie. I had a lot to do with making that movie. It took okay. 11 years. Okay. Uh, 11 so years. took 11 years wow. to get that movie made. Great script by Pam Gray and our dear friend Tony Goldwyn uh, directed it. Uh, help produce it. Uh, uh, you know, he's the president in Scandal now, but he's a, a brilliantly talented uh, uh-huh. artist and uh, can do so many things and a real supporter of our project and the movement. So I think it's a terrific movie. I think uh, uh, we were really so hoping f- for, you know, that it... Uh, could be Academy Award worthy. Well, yeah, came out and came out. Unfortunately, the same year as The Fighter and uh, uh, other movies uh, about the same uh, era, same kinds of people. I don't, I don't know, but uh, uh, I thought it was uh, underrated. Uh, I'm wa- very biased. I have a lot look, to do with making I don't, it. But, look, uh, my wife and I saw it a couple weeks ago on, on Netflix. I thought it was great. Oh, it is great. But it, what's yeah. it like for you to be watching someone else play you? Is that weird or what? Well. It, I, I wasn't there when uh, 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 Peter read the lines, and he came in. He's just a great guy. And, uh, but it's a little different because, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I had, I had a lot to do with making that movie from yeah. the very, very beginning, yeah. from the interviews, through the scripts, through casting. Were you there uh, when they were shooting it? Yeah. yeah, I yeah, was yeah, there okay. on set. So, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I even read some lines uh, as myself. <laughs> When uh, uh, Hillary uh, and, uh, you know, her good friend uh, are walking through a supermarket and she's, uh, uh, Betty Ann is talking to me on the telephone, but you don't, you, you see Peter Gallagher on a hot dog stand in the streets of New York talking on the phone, right? But in fact, when the lines are being read, I'm talking to Hillary for her reaction mm-hmm. when she filmed mm-hmm. it. So that's, so it, it, I didn't have the... F- 
funny feelings. Okay. <laughs> okay. More of a. So you were in on I it. I was from very the in on it. Yeah, very in on it. I mean, it's a it's a great story. This woman, uh, Betty Ann Gow. Betty Ann. Betty Ann Waters. Betty Ann Waters. She. I think she just had a high school education. Actually, she had a GED. She. Her brother yes. went to prison for a murder he didn't commit. She was sure he didn't do it. She decided to go to college and go to law school to get him out. Right. And and she did. Yeah. And with the help, and, and, with and your it, help and the, the pressure, help. The pressure, you know, broke up her marriage. Yeah. You know, she's raising two kids. Right. Uh, it's, it's just an unbelievable story. But the sad thing was, and this wasn't covered in the movie because, as I read, it was too much of a downer to it be in the well, movie, it, is that the guy, after he was released, what, died he had a, a, year, what, a year later? A, a yeah, year, he yeah. had an accident. He, he, he fell off a wall. Yeah. Uh, uh, heading home from a Chinese restaurant um, and fractured his skull and died. And that was uh, after ha- spending how long in prison? Like uh, 10 years? Uh, no, he did more than that. I think Kenny did a, uh, close to 17, 18 years. Wow. Uh, wow. And, he, and he did terrible time. He, he yeah. really had yeah. hepatitis. He, he was suicidal. It was really horrible. Yeah. And they depict uh, some of the problems that he faced uh, mentally in the movie. Uh, but uh, no, we tried a lot of different things uh, with that. I, you know, we had a, we had one ending written, where uh, 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 in a hospital room, a true story about uh, uh, with him dying. Audiences hated that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, the even putting the uh, uh, you know what happened to everybody later in print, in print yeah, at, at the, the end. end. There's some of that. If we say Kenny died. People hated right. it, and even this was put, the antithesis of a Hollywood ending. There was just right. no way to incorporate and, it. And and then the worst part was even if we put in for Kenny at the end, people would know he was dead, and they got upset leaving the movie theater. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know, so we just got rid of it completely. Was that a cop out to do that? Do you think? I don't think it was a cop out. I mean, uh, uh, the movie. I think it ends on uh, on actually a, a wonderful note at the uh, uh, the house that they shared by the woods with the two of them. Before you go, I do want to ask you about the U.S. Supreme Court's jurisprudence. As much as you've accomplished <coughs> with respect to advancing the rights of the wrongfully c- convicted, your cause has not fared too well at the U.S. Supreme Court. And, and there are two, I think, key cases to talk about. One is Herrera versus Collins, in which the high court ruled uh, in 1993 that a claim of actual innocence based on newly discovered evidence is not grounds for federal habeas relief. Well, Have I that, summarized me, that correctly? Me, no, uh, not, as okay. a matter of fact. Okay. Uh, this is misunderstood. Okay. Uh, in Herrera v. Collins, uh, a case went to the United States Supreme Court uh, where the question was put to them, uh, would just being actually innocent alone raise a federal constitutional claim mm-hmm. All right, in a, in a writ of habeas corpus? And a plurality decision by uh, uh, Justice Rehnquist said, uh, well, assuming arguendo that actual innocence would be a federal constitutional claim, uh, Herrera is not innocent or did not make a sufficient showing. Uh, Justice uh, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote a concurring opinion in which she said, 
Are you kidding? It would be a constitutional uh, uh, disaster. Yes. Uh, uh, not to say that actual innocence would present a federal constitutional claim. And she made suggestions about what that standard would be. Uh, Justice White agreed with her. Uh, uh, Justice Souter and Justice Blackman uh, uh, dissented. And they said, I think there's enough evidence here to hold a hearing. Altogether, uh, if you exclude Rehnquist, who didn't take a position one way or the other, uh, uh, Scalia uh, and Thomas uh, dissented, saying, uh, we don't think there is such a constitutional claim, but even if there were such a case, don't worry, the clemency system would take care of it before it ever reached our court. Uh, in fact, there have been six votes on the United States Supreme Court for actual innocence as a federal constitutional claim. Uh, Herrera, right, forward. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you can see I follow this with some mm -hmm. care, mm -hmm. when Ruth Bader Ginsburg and John Roberts uh, were uh, brought before the Senate Judiciary Committee, they were asked about whether they thought actual innocence was a federal constitutional claim, and they said they thought it was. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor uh, had already so uh, found it when she was sitting on the Second Circuit. Uh, and I don't think there's any doubt that Judge Kagan believes that as well. Uh, Judge Alito, uh, when he was asked about it at this, uh, in his confirmation hearings, said he didn't think he could answer that question because it might arise in front of the court. Uh, but it did recently. And it did in the case of Troy Davis. Yes. And in the Troy Davis case, um, an original writ was brought uh, to the United States Supreme Court after he had failed the regular route. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court remanded it for a hearing right. on the claim of actual innocence. Right. Um, and by the way, I forgot to include Justice Stevens as supporting the right of actual innocence as a federal constitutional claim uh, in the original Herrera decision. So... Uh, that shows already. Yeah, and when it was remanded, it was, the judge lower court I, found that the, the new was not, evidence was not compelling enough to reverse right, the when, verdict, and, it, right, and he whatever, was uh, ultimately executed. That's right. Whatever that standard is, and yeah. I, I'm I'm troubled by the way that evidence went in. When the when the Supreme Court remanded, there was a dissent by Justice Scalia. And uh, his words, uh, they become, uh, depending on your point of view, either famous or infamous, uh, which he said, the court has never held that the Constitution forbids the execution of a convicted defendant who has had a full and fair trial, but is later able to convince a habeas court that he is actually innocent. Now, you know, it occurs to me that, you know, a, 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 an opinion can be reprehensible and yet technically correct. Is, is Scalia's dissent, does that fit that into that category, would you say? No, I don't think so. You don't so. think it's correct? No, I don't think it's correct. And, uh, because, <laughs> as well I mean, as reprehensible. Well, what's correct? What, yeah. uh, uh, you know, if you have five votes on the U.S. Supreme Court, I'll tell you what's correct. Uh, um, you know, so some people have said, <laughs> Justice Brennan. Uh, but the, the truth is, I think both... Uh, um, uh, there are six votes 
to recognize actual innocence as a federal constitutional claim if the proper case gets there in the right posture. Uh, and I think that would be the correct the decision. And, you know, the man on the street, a woman on the street, is going to have that reaction. I mean, nobody wants to believe mm-hmm. that our system uh, is uh, so wacky that if you can actually prove after your trial that you're innocent, yeah. that such a conviction should stand under our system as a matter of uh, <clears throat> due process or under the Eighth Amendment, uh, but certainly as a matter of due process. I think it's uh, um, you know, a clear violation as to what that standard should be. Yeah. I think it's going to be I mean, the real fundamental question is, can you legally execute a person who's clearly innocent, even if he or she has gotten a quote-unquote fair trial and exhausted all of his I, or her I think, appeals? I think that's absurd. Yeah. Uh, and I think most people you think, think it's, it's absurd. absurd. You think it's absurd to, to, to execute such a person? Of course it's yeah. absurd. Yeah. It's an, I mean, I think Justice O'Connor called it a... Uh, uh, a constitutional obscenity, yeah. that may be uh, the phrase. But, but, but that's, that's clearly but what the about case. The, but what about the system's interest in finality? I mean, you describe that as wishful thinking, but certainly... No, wish fi- finality is a very important value. But yeah. um, you know what we've been able to do in these DNA cases, and you can find it in other cases, is that uh, there are instances where you can get a better fact-finding process even 20 or 30 years later because of technological advances or certain uh, unimpeachable evidence than you uh, got at the time of the original trial. I mean, nobody doubts that it's much harder. Gosh, I I live this every day. uh, uh, To get the best evidence possible 10, 20, 30 years later uh, than at the time of the original trial. On the other hand, sometimes you do get, mm-hmm. because of either technology or witnesses coming forward who wouldn't come forward before, or people didn't know about before, more uh, reliable uh, fact-finding years later. And, and that's really the issue. So nobody uh, questions that finality is an important principle, uh, but it can't be uh, the end-all principle in, in a uh, humane and decent uh, legal system in a democracy. Uh, people just won't accept, uh, with good reason, uh, a system that would allow not just the execution, but the continued incarceration of an individual who's actually innocent. And I think even Justice Scalia would say, uh, and Justice Thomas, uh, that they're not claiming that. They're saying, oh, if we had a, some proof of actual innocence, some clemency board or governor would pardon them. So, uh, uh, it's just their view. So that's of the where the system. wishful thinking comes in. Yes, I think it's wishful thinking to believe yeah. that uh, yeah. uh, such clemency boards uh, uh, can, can effectively do that job. They uh, do have a fail-safe function in the system, but the truth is, they're not very good at fact-finding. Um, they're not set up to do fact-finding. Indeed, many of our post-conviction processes uh, are not ac- adequately designed to do fact-finding, and that's one of the reasons why. Uh, in North Carolina, there's a very good system. There's a, uh, uh, an institution that actually has subpoena power that can look uh, at cases to make factual findings as whether somebody's actually innocent or not. Experiments have been going on in the United Kingdom where they have something called the Criminal Case Review Commission mm-hmm. uh, that can look at cases, which has uh, been okay, but uh, by no means perfect. <clears throat> Canada uh, uh, has... Uh, pretty good law in this area. Um, And our view from the innocence movement 
is that it should be an international human right that in any legal system, whether it's adversarial or inquisitorial, uh, there has to be a mechanism in place where somebody had, uh, can prove uh, that they're actually innocent and get their conviction uh, thrown out. That's a fundamental human right as far as I'm concerned and as far as our innocence movement is concerned. Uh, and I think that every legal system in the world should adopt that as a principle. Um, and I think it would be a good thing if we had a formal decision uh, to that effect from the United States Supreme Court. <clears throat> but I think the jurisprudence is clear uh, that there are still six votes for that proposition. Uh, even today, you can count them. Hmm. I'll let that be the final word. Barry Sheck, thank you so much for thank doing you. this program. My I really pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.